Conservative Christian, right wing Republican, straight white American male. Gay bashing, black fear, poor Once upon a time, uh, most of us did not know who Mike Johnson was or is. I mean, and that once upon a time was not that long ago. There's there's a sense of time distortion these days. I feel like Mike Johnson has now been in my mind for a long time, but that's not really true. Uh, and even if he was somebody that we knew anything about, which he isn't, there's still a lot to unpack and decode. Uh, I was thinking this morning that if you were to pick a title for a movie about Mike Johnson, it would be probably a tie between the perks of being a wallflower and the man who fell to earth. There's kind of a sense of this guy that we can prove that he existed, but there's something a little strangely newly arrived about him, generally speaking. For example, there's been some reporting this morning that he appears not to have had a bank account or at least reported a bank like a savings or checking account or anything like that. Uh, And that's a requirement for members of the House, but he doesn't seem to have a bank account. Uh, He also has uh, this kind of interesting and unusual story about a black son whom he adopted at the age of 14, but who nobody sees now. He's an adult, apparently living in California, maybe. Um, just, there's just a very strange arrival in our midst of this new Speaker of the House. So we're going to try to decode and unpack and figure out Mike Johnson today, just a little bit anyway, a little bit more. And one of our favorite people to talk to about certain aspects of public life uh, is Vanessa Friedman. Uh, she's the uh, very wonderful uh, person who writes about fashion, uh, fashion director and chief fashion critic for The New York Times. She's been with us before to help, for example, with Nancy Pelosi's various outfits during the impeachment uh, and accessorizing and stuff like that. So we, th- we figured, who else? Who else should we begin with besides Vanessa? So first of all, welcome back to our show. Thanks so much. It is always a pleasure to talk to you about these subjects. Yes. So since I said accessorizing, can we start with the glasses? Uh, I feel as though you could argue that Mike Johnson is a milder version of Jim Jordan, except he wears glasses and he wears a suit jacket. We can come to that, too. But the glasses are kind of interesting. And and you've noted actually a transition over time in, in his glasses. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. If you go back to his um, his portrait on his um, official page, actually, um, he is wearing rimless glasses that look kind of cool and also fade much more into his face than the ones he has now, which are the sort of roundish horn rim glasses that, you know, make people think probably of academics or slightly nerdy people, um, generally people who are unthreatening. And kind of cute. <laughs> um, yeah, I've seen the rimless glasses too. Actually, went in the kind of famous Amanpour and Country and Company interview where he talked about his black son. He still had those <laughs> rimless glasses, and they were kind of hip looking for a Southern Christian conservative. I, I thought, as you know now, I thought a little bit of Clark Kent when I saw him. And then when I think about Clark Kent, and this sort of gets into the meat of a lot of what you do, uh, Jules Pfeiffer years ago pointed out that Clark Kent is a disguise. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. Superman is the reality, uh, as Mm -hmm. opposed to Batman, where Batman is the disguise and Bruce Wayne is presumably the reality. Um, And, you know, everybody wears a little bit of a disguise, maybe, Vanessa. Uh, And I think people who are in public life and are public figures, they don't dress randomly, right? They dress with a certain agenda. Can you say a little bit more about what maybe you see here? 
I mean, I think that, you know, what you said about dressing for an agenda is actually key to this and why it matters and why it's worth paying attention to particularly what our public figures wear, because we live in this increasingly visual world, right, where everything is communicated via pictures on social media, whether or not you then listen to the actual words that are said or read the policy papers that are issued. And we're always making judgments about the people we're electing based on what they look like, whether or not we want to admit it. You know, do they look like someone, do I believe them? Do they look believable? Do they look like someone I can relate to? Do they look trustworthy? Do they look effective? You know, all these different kinds of questions. And often these are like subconscious issues. Like we're not really articulating that to ourselves, but it is absolutely part of our judgment process. And it is part of the way public figures, you know, strategically manipulate opinion and get people on their side. So when you're talking about somebody who, as you pointed out, is relatively unknown, but is suddenly running for and then thrust into this very public position, how he looks is going to be, A, immediately how we all judge him, and a lot of a large part of persuading people that he is actually the right person for the job. And the way he looks particularly in contrast to Jim Jordan, right, as you pointed out, is, you know, kind of benign, kind of nice. He looks professional. He looks like part of the group, right? He dresses respectfully in a suit and tie the way you want your senators or your public or your representatives to dress. And he doesn't dress to stand out. He doesn't take off the suit, roll up his shirt sleeves and look like he's about to punch someone, which was part of the Jim Jordan (laughs) aesthetic right he's always like i'm here to i'm here to fight for what i want literally i think more more wrestling than punching but i take your point exactly exactly um you know by contrast this you know mike johnson looks he looks like a kind of nice guy you could maybe work with and then you actually read his words or what he said in the past and you think wow Maybe he's not quite as benign as he seems. Yeah, I'd, I'd go two places with you on this. One of them is uh, we're in the midst of a very kind of Vanessa Friedman interesting moment in terms of just how people dress in Congress. And we have, on the one hand, we had Jordan, who was essentially eschewing wearing a suit jacket except under grave duress. Uh, mm-hmm. And and you got uh, Fetterman uh, in the Senate who, who <laughs> dresses like Fetterman and, <laughs> and nobody else really. Uh, and, and that's all become kind of a bargaining chip. Fetterman is even semi-seriously offered to start wearing a suit if the Republicans will do certain things like, you know, not not crash yeah. the budget or something like that. Uh, and, and Schumer, of course, suspended the, the dress code itself. And so in the midst of all that, there's a term within Congress, which I don't entirely understand, but it's called regular order. It's kind of how you how you're supposed mm-hmm. to do things. Mm-hmm. It seems to me Mike Johnson is kind of coming in not only to this chaotic political environment, but a somewhat chaotic fashion environment and kind of being the poster boy for regular order. Yeah, it's absolutely his selling point, right? His superficial selling point, because as soon as you as you pull that away, right, if you start to look, look under the suit or under the glasses, you find something that is not maybe quite as regular mm-hmm. as most people might assume. Yeah. No, I, I think that's totally it. And then I think the other part of this is, and you've already basically covered it, but he's he presents as a policy nerd. He looks kind of, he's got kind of a Paul Ryan vibe. I mean, he's nerdier than Paul Ryan, but the read on him, when you read his initial code, it says policy nerd probably spends a lot of time hitting the books. 
And then you you learn a little bit more. It turns out like the main book he's hidden is the Bible. Bible Uh, is absolutely the Bible. Yeah. You know, it was also really interesting that for his swearing in as speaker, he wore, you know, what is effectively the, the now the MAGA uniform for elected officials, right? It is the blue suit, the Navy suit, the red tie, the white shirt. And that's not actually his, like his, his, his standard uniform. He often will wear gray. He'll wear a kind of banal sort of neutral striped tie. You know, he's not a kind of red, white, and blue Republican in his usual present, his standard presentation. But for that moment, when he was going to be photographed, you know, for that moment that was caught for history, he went, you know, full on in the group. Yeah. And I, you know, the overall look of a lot of MAGA conservatives in Congress, people who are participating in the making the laws of our country, is is sort of a Saturday morning detention look. You know, you've got Jordan with no jacket. You've got Mm -hmm. Boebert and MTG, um, uh, who... (laughs) do various things with their outfits. Um, and and there's kind of a sense that, yeah, this is the breakfast club. We are, you know, we are not necessarily conforming to anybody's rules and we'll send a few signals through our dress. Again, it seems like Johnson, and this may even explain some of how he slipped through the voting process, right. he just is sending the signal, well, I'm not like that. Um, right. although I'm not, not going to rock the boat. I'm yeah. not going to stand out. I'm not going to do anything too like too radical. Right? He looks he looks the absolute opposite of radical. Right, and he is not literally, but you know that idea of the man, man in the gray flannel suit. There is a, that sense of a kind of neutralizing of your visual presentation, and the more you neutralize your visual presentation, the more people have an opportunity to project what right. what they want to see. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's going to be really interesting to see um, how this develops as he gets more and more put to the test. And, um, you know, if he has to essentially pick a side in how he looks. Right. I, and I think, uh, Vanessa, when we try to judge people, and there's actually been a ton of research about how quickly people make up their minds about public figures, and sometimes it's just an eye blink almost, Drew Weston and other people. But what are we looking at? It seems to me that, and this has threaded its way through our conversation today, we're looking at somebody and we are we thinking, are they in any way like me? Or if they're not like me, do I recognize this. I mean, when I see a picture of Lauren Boebert mm-hmm. and she's holding like an AK-47 and she's got kind of a skimpy outfit on and some interesting eyewear choices herself, I just think, I don't even know this person. I don't know anybody who's anything like this person. But, you know, some of Johnson is is just saying, well, you kind of recognize me, right? I think it depends what the context is, mm-hmm. right? If it's If it's during a campaign, right, if it's before an election, we're often thinking, do I like this person? Do I do I think they can relate to me and my problems? You know, do I want to have a beer with this person? Um, you know, at, once they're actually in office, I think it becomes more: Do I trust this person? Do they look like they can like can do the job? Right? Do they look professional? Do I feel like they're representing my me well, my country well, my interests well? And so I think we often want people to look more. I mean, if you're talking about Washington, more like Washington when they're in Washington, perhaps, and less like Washington when they're out of Washington. And, you know, right now, looking at Mike Johnson, I think he looks, he looks like just a, you know, a good guy. He looks like a good guy. He's he's fine. Yes. And I mean, it kind of gets back to that question we began with. 
when you dress a certain way, are you Superman underneath? Is this a disguise? Mm -hmm. Are you Mm -hmm. somebody else Mm -hmm. underneath? Or Mm -hmm. does the way that you dress, in fact, represent a relatively accurate statement about your identity? And and it seems (laughs) there's some way that George Santos weaves his his way into this conversation, too. But there's, I think, a sense with Johnson that, oh, he looked one way, but it might be kind of a disguise. I think that's what happens. And that's why you get, I mean, I've actually seen a number of headlines that are like, what's under the suit jacket, you know, or <laughs> wolf in suits clothing or something. Um, because when you start looking at what he has said in the past, what he, the way he votes, the, you know, what he's written, it seems very unaligned with how he, with his benign appearance, right? It's not often really not benign at all. And it certainly doesn't look middle of the road or milk toast. And that's what his appearance is giving. Absolutely. It is always such a pleasure to talk to you. And you always add so much to our our conversation about these things. Vanessa Friedman is fashion director and chief fashion critic for The New York Times. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Colin. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready, so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. In my grandpa's pulpit was a Bible he had seen his daddy murdered. He had seen his <laughs> You know, that song is scarier now than when I picked it out. I don't know why, but it, it alarms me more. So we're going to transition from the semiotics of Mike Johnson's fashion uh, to one of the things that lies beneath all that, and that is his religious faith and his involvement with a movement that clearly seeks to substitute apolitical value, uh, religious values for for religious values in, in a lot of different sectors of American life, including politics. And one of the experts in that is Catherine Stewart, investigative reporter and author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Political Nationalism. Catherine Stewart, welcome to our show. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. So you've done so much work about this. And so for a lot of us, last week 
when Mike Johnson kind of emerged into the spotlight. Uh, I mean, it, it, not just us. Susan Collins, the senator from Maine, said she had to Google who he was. Um, it, it eventually surfaced that um, upon winning the speaker election, it turned out that he had never met Mitch McConnell. Uh, and uh, in fact, he had to go right from the speaker election to a meeting with the Australian prime minister who met the new speaker before the you know the, the leader of the Republicans in the opposite chamber did. I, I don't know whether you knew who Mike Johnson is or was, but I do know from your work that you would have been pretty quick to assemble some of the pieces of who he was and where he came from. And I, I just maybe would like to ask you that question. As as he began to come into focus for you, you probably had some pretty concrete thoughts about kind of where he came from. Absolutely. As Vanessa said, in spite of the fact that he's projecting a somewhat mild or moderate image, what really matters is his agenda And we should make no mistake, Johnson is a zealot and his agenda is extreme. Uh, He's long been a loyal soldier to America's America's religious right. And, you know, he will continue to act uh, to support and, and promote the ideals of that movement. So let's review some facts. First of all, he was instrumental in advancing Donald Trump's attempted coup against the United States government. He wasn't just the legal muscle for the young earth creationist outfit answers in Genesis. They believe the earth was, uh, is something like 6,000 years old. He actually blogged on the organization's website and spoke at a conference that they hosted in 2022. He says he doesn't believe in the separation of church and state. He has said he doesn't believe America is or should be a democracy. Um, he is, uh, uses the language of dominionism or the idea that uh, a certain kind of Christian should dominate all of the mountains, as they call it, or molders of society like government and education and and law. He he doesn't believe in human-caused climate change. He, He opposes, frankly, the development of the clean energy sector, which could be a real economic driver in in red states. He's blamed school shootings on birth control and abortion. He's got this very extreme economic agenda, cuts in Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid so severe they would lead uh, leave millions of Americans in, in misery. But the point of all these crazy positions is that they're not just a laundry list of bad ideas. They're part of the package of the Christian nationalist movement and its anti-democratic aims. So as many of his positions have come to light, we can make sense of them when we see his history of activism in that Christian nationalist movement. Yeah, so let's hear a little bit of what some of that sounds like. This is him talking to Sean Hannity. This is going to be B2, Cat, if you can see it there. Uh, here's uh, here. up. Oh, oh, okay, so here's Mike Johnson uh, dis- actually sort of explaining some of what Catherine just said to Sean Hannity, B2. I, I am a Bible-believing Christian. Someone asked me today in the media, they said, it's a curious, people are curious, what does Mike Johnson think about any issue under the sun? I said, well, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's, that's my worldview. That's what I believe. Which is, which is not something, I mean, well, let's, let's go back 
for a second, Catherine. We've had uh, presidents and we've had other political leaders who were very, very demonstrative about their faith. In 1980, we had three presidential candidates, all three of whom professed to be born-again Christians. I think I believed two of them. That was Carter, Anderson, and Reagan. Um, and, and then, Catherine, you know, we, in the 80s, we had the new right. We had the moral majority. Uh, th- that was Falwell and, and people like that. Uh, we had the Christian Coalition in the 90s. That was Ralph Reed and some of the people who followed him. But I feel as though you're describing a somewhat different animal. These were movements that attempted certainly to introduce a lot of um, conservative ideas and marry them to to Christian faith and and make them part of the national agenda. Uh, Are the groups that you're talking about now substantially different from those? One thing that makes them different is that uh, the movement has invested in its infrastructure over five decades. It used to be that they would present themselves as just wanting a seat at the table in the noisy forum of American democracy. Look, you know, they would say, look, we just want to express our views. We have this religious viewpoint. We want to, you know, be heard just like everybody else. But Christian nationalism simply doesn't believe in democracy. And and once you understand that, it's easy to see how his uh, Mike Johnson's fanatical positions fall into place. His, uh, for example, his decision to join in Trump's conspiracy against the United States government, it wasn't just opportunism. He didn't didn't just do that because it was good for his career. It follows directly from Christian nationalist doctrine that says the function of government is to impose supposedly biblical values on everybody. I mean, they'll take democracy if it delivers on the promise, but they'll just as happily dispense with democracy if they disagree with the outcome of elections. So one thing that makes the, the, that brings up is a difference between Mike Johnson and Mike Pence. Um, these are both very, very devout Christians from a very conservative strain of Christianity. I know Mike Johnson has a so-called covenant marriage, which is sort of explicitly harder to get out of or to achieve divorce from than a typical marriage. I can't remember whether Pence does or not. He certainly, if, if he doesn't, he has all the trappings of it in the way he describes his, his personal life. And yet one of these people decided that he couldn't participate uh, in a coup or an attempt to uh, overturn legal election results, and the other one did. And I'm not asking you to explain that because you can't look inside their heads, but do you have kind of a heuristic sense of, of what might have happened? You know, I think the you know the fact that Trump is overwhelming front runner in the Republican field and that somebody like Mike Pence doesn't have a chance shows us that this really isn't about religion. It's really about political power. Um, I think that the movement exploits religion uh, to achieve its aims. It sees religion as a very sort of useful tool, but there are many Christians who oppose uh, Christian nationalism. There are so many groups out there, uh, faith-based groups and Christian groups that are opposing it. And, and and they say that it's antithetical to the gospel. They they are, you know, likely right about that. But what the Republican electorate is telling us, unfortunately, is that they're in love, not just with Trump, with one man, but with the politics of hate and unreason that he represents. And so I think there are these two shifts in the Republican Party we have to think about in the longer time frame. So one is that given that Trump is the clear favorite, the party has largely abandoned conservatism and is now 
refashioning itself as a revolutionary party. It doesn't want to preserve institutions of value that have served us, uh, us over time. It really wants to to blow it up. Um, they they want to you know sort of destroy much of the system and take control of whatever remains. And you see this in you know some of the folks that collaborate with uh, religious right leaders who call themselves representatives of the new right, like Christopher Rufo, who talks about laying siege to institutions. And the the other shift I would say is that the Republican Party is trying to align itself with the working class, and 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 really they're just pretending to do this because all they really offer is culture war red meat to the end of time, rather than policies that are actually going to improve the lives of most working Americans. You know, this is a party that claims to stand for family values, and yet they are driving support for politicians whose policies are making it so much harder for American families to succeed. Um, one of the things that the Moral Majority and the Christian Coalition, I think you could fairly accurately describe them as attempting to um, introduce um, ideas uh, about Christian values into the political conversation. One of the things that you've looked at is sort of a little bit the opposite of that. And I'm thinking of some of these less well-known, more grassroots movements like Watchmen on the Wall or Faith Wins, which are attempts by religious leaders or at least hosted by by pastors, basically, to introduce politics into religion. Instead of introducing religion into politics, uh, which is still going on, as you've just explained, these are attempts to introduce politics into religion. I know you've even been to at least one meeting uh, like that, uh, some kind of luncheon or dinner or something. Can you just say what that's like and what goes on there? Yeah, you know, I've been to a number of these gatherings of groups like Watchmen on the Wall or Faith Wins, that what they do is they these organizations get groups of pastors together. Uh, they draw them into their network. They find uh, often conservative leaning or conservative pastors. They you know bring them together often at churches for a lunch or a dinner, and then or even a breakfast. And the, they'll give them talking points and tell them that um, you know they need to get their people out to vote their so called biblical values and those supposedly biblical values always boil down to those that culture war red meat, same-sex marriage, abortion, that type of thing. Uh, and they say, you know, things like the church is not a cruise ship, the church is a battleship. They talk about how, um, you know, we're in, an we're in an apocalyptic war between, you know, absolute good and absolute evil and the consequences of political loss are too, too dire to ignore. Um, at this gathering I went to, it was a Faith Wins gathering. They've done hundreds of gatherings at, you know, across the country, uh, Watchmen of the Wall. Same thing. I went to one of their gatherings in North Carolina. Each gathering draws in multiple pastors from the area. They often do these events in advance of elections in swing districts and swing states. They know very well that if you can get the pastors, you can get their congregants to vote. So they, you know, pastors are often the most trusted people in their congregants' lives. So they really devote a lot of these resources to these pastors. Then they give them voters' guides, voting guides, which, you know, they'll still, they'll claim to be nonpartisan, but they leave no question whatsoever about how congregants are supposed to vote their supposedly biblical values. And then they even give 
pastors tools for building teams within their churches that will tell other congregants how to vote. And so the pastor doesn't have to do it, you know, and violate the the tax uh, status because pastors aren't supposed to endorse political candidates. But if they can get their congregants to do it, it's a different story. Yes. And we should say, I assume that these voter guides that you're talking about, the pastors get like maybe a uh, uh, if they exist physically as opposed to digitally, a bundle of them to pass out oh to Oh, my them. gosh. Yeah. I mean, I've I've seen thousands of these voter guides distributed at these gatherings, and pastors are loading them into their cars. Yeah. So um, I, the other part of this is, and, and once again, uh, I'm inviting the listeners to think about this. This is a meeting of pastors. Um, I think you were at one where a guy named Hogan Gidley, who was a former Trump administration official, and I think in 2020 uh, joined the Trump campaign in some capacity and then was one of the many people uh, sort of articulating what we now call the big lie. But he was the speaker at one of these things. Can you just recollect what he said? Oh, the amazing thing about Hogan Gidley is he was marketed as an elections integrity expert, but he was there to essentially spread lies about the election. He was saying, oh, dead people are voting, they're registering people who are already you know, deceased, et cetera. And then he said, this is a thing that really got me. He said, you all saw what happened in Arizona, didn't you? Now, this was several weeks after a Republican-led committee had concluded a study. You, you remember the whole, what were they called? Cyber, Cyber ninjas. ninjas. Yeah. Right. They concluded a study they were looking for uh, voter fraud. They were motivated to find it. It was a Republican-led committee. And at the end of this investigation, they said, well, actually, there's no fraud that we found. Actually, Joe Biden got maybe a couple dozen more votes than we thought. And that was it. And yet, here's Hogan Gidley still spreading this fiction that there was vast fraud in Arizona because the lie is to... Um, expedient to dispense with. And most pastors are not, you know, glued to the news. So they may have missed the fact that these uh, uh, Republican cyber ninjas turned up nothing. Yeah. And uh, one thing that I was wondering today, uh, I went back and I listened to a little bit of uh, Pat Buchanan's either famous or infamous speech in the 1992 convention in which he laid out a lot of the same kind of value sets that we're talking about here. But it was it, it, it seemed to backfire at the time. Um, I think Molly Ivins famously said it sounded better in the original German. Um, and, and But it was very, very public. And people remember it. I remember it. If I talk to somebody more or less my age, they'll remember it. I feel like the things that we're talking about now exist at a little bit more of a stealth or dog whistle level. I, prior to starting to familiarize myself with your work, I'd never heard of Watchmen on the Wall or Faith Wins. You just mentioned another one called Answers in Genesis. I've never heard of that before. Uh, I'd never heard of Mike Johnson before. Is that all of a piece? Is some of this just kind of going on at a diff- different and mostly, except for journalists like you, a, a less public level? It's amazing because this is a movement that's sort of hiding in plain, plain sight. It's not that they're they're like, you know, disguised. It's that like, people aren't listening. So this movement has invested, as I said earlier, for f- over five decades in infrastructure. And they've got right wing policy groups, uh, legal, uh, vast legal advocacy sort of ecosphere, which Mike Johnson worked in for years. He For a decade, he was a lawyer with the Alliance Defending Freedom, um, which is the sort of legal juggernaut of the Christian right. Um, They have an annual operating budget of $102 million per year. 
Look, the, the Christian nationalist movement realized some time ago that they could not win in a fair fight. They can't win at the ballot box because they um, a lot of their positions are frankly very unpopular. That's why major donors of the organization and leaders decided on a strategy of gaining control of the judiciary. But the movement also, you know, is going up. Uh, they're going after elected offices. They go after state legislatures. They went after the Republican Party. Um, and uh, Boards of education, too. Let's not leave them. Boards out. of education, absolutely. I went to a Moms for Liberty conference just a few months ago in Philadelphia. They really want to remake public education and divert a lot of taxpayer money to private religious schools that are free to discriminate, um, teach contempt for those who are different, etc. Yeah. Um, Moms for Liberty, that, I do know about anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that infrastructure is not hiding, you know, but I think a lot of times we fail when we read about these initiatives that they support, we fail to connect the dots. I think sometimes people still see um, like the abortion issue or the gay marriage issue, for instance, as just, um, you know, independent policy positions. But the point is that these a lot of these positions are are really part of a, a larger package and they're part of a, a package that is deeply anti-democratic and frankly authoritarian. They're really devoted to minority rule. They think that a right-thinking minority should be uh, able to impose its views on all of society. And if they get the courts, they can do that. Yeah, I want to just go back to something you said a couple seconds ago, um, because this is worth maybe just drilling down on a little bit more. This shouldn't work on a pervasive level. Um, with each passing year, with each passing Gallup poll and other study, uh, the indications are that the people who are heavily invested in religion are gradually being left in the wake of a growing group of people who subscribe to no religion at all. Not even We're not even counting the people who are just sort of, you know, somewhat more casually involved in their own religions. But we have this growing group of so-called nuns, N-O-N-E nuns, uh, who don't subscribe to any particular faith. Uh, and, and they're growing. And a lot in, of religious progressives as right. well. And we have, and, and the nuns are growing more in the millennial generation. So uh, as new cohorts come along, presumably, this is going to become a less religious country, kind of following the lead of Europe. So I guess what you're saying is they don't really have the numbers, but yeah, using the courts and, and playing small ball with smaller political institutions, they can they can make some headway. And turning out the vote in disproportionate numbers, which is what uh, a lot of the infrastructure of the movement is really about, which is what groups like Watchmen on the Wall and Faith Winds are about. Look, in a country where 40 to 50% of people don't bother to vote, and an additional number have their votes essentially downgraded or stolen from them through voter suppression and gerrymandering, it doesn't take a majority of the country to win elections. All it takes is a disproportionately activated minority of people. Um, so they know that, uh, you know, they're very explicit about that. And they're very good about messaging. I've, in advance of the 2016-2020 um, the, uh, elections, I heard a number of speakers at these gatherings I attend say, this election is about judges, judges, judges. So they get people to, and they'll say, we don't need a savior. We already have a savior in Jesus Christ. You know, we need a leader who can who can get it done. Um, and, you know, I, another thing I have to say about that, you know, it's the idea that a supposedly right-thinking minority should be able to dominate over 
everyone else um, and and overturn elections and they, they should be able to overturn elections they don't like. I mean, it's a really deeply authoritarian, anti-democratic idea. And somebody like Mike Johnson is is fi- not just fine with that. I mean, he advocates for it. He uh, uses the language of dominionism. He says, you know, we're involved in a so-called spiritual war and the consequences of loss in the p- political arena are, are just, you know, are, are, are apocalyptic. He talks about how we don't live in a democracy. People need to like, you know, look behind his glasses, his beautiful <laughs> eyewear, and actually listen to what, what he's saying. Um, one last question. Um, this would be a, a full conversation, so which we don't have time for. But um, but this isn't all just about faith. As, as I read your work, as, as I read some of the other stuff that goes along with it, you get the feeling that there's some money on the table. That there, obviously, there are you know megachurch pastors who have very lavish lifestyles and things like that, and private jets and stuff like that. But maybe also groups of business people who, if they can find some Christian nationalists who don't believe that climate change is real, can participate in in rollbacks of regulations that inhibit their ability to spew carbons into the atmosphere. Or, I mean, just say something kind of general anyway about how you see the role of money in all this. Well, you're absolutely right. This is an incredibly well-funded movement, and the ultra-wealthy individuals funding the movement want the kind of tax policies uh, and policies toward business and the environment that benefit them. So a lot of the funders have ties to um, fossil fuels. And you know, why on earth would somebody like Mike Johnson be opposed to, to the development of a green energy sector? Well, a lot of people have said that uh, he comes from a fossil fuel dependent district in Louisiana, but it's frankly more than that. Um, I think the there's the wealthy individuals funding it who are more motivated by money and policy uh, often than by their sort of stances in the culture wars. And you know the, they just see the culture wars as a way to get the little people to vote for policies that benefit them. But for the Christian nationalist leaders. Um, Climate denialism is actually key. They see everything through the lens of what what they see as a biblical mandate for dominion on the earth and all of its people. So um, you've got these different groups. You've got the the wealthy funders. You've got the the activists, the Christian nationalist leaders, and you have the new right intellectuals. They don't all, frankly, want the same thing, but they recognize that they can use one another. And uh, ultimately, it's really about power. Very interestingly put. Catherine Stewart is an investigative reporter and commentator and author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And then we're going to take a little break, and we're going to talk in the final segment about, among other things, does there have to be a speaker? Was Is there some other way to organize these people? we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. 
Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public Today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 on any podcast app. If there's a place for reviews and ratings, give us lots of stars and be sure to mention the high thread count in our sheets and pillowcases, as well as the complimentary breakfast buffet. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. And thanks today to our technical producer, Cat Pastor. Lily Tyson is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, also the producer of this particular episode. So we're going to uh, spend a little bit more time uh, on or perhaps perhaps with Mike Johnson. To do that, uh, Lee Drutman is senior fellow in the political reform department at New America and the author of Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America, among other books. He's also the co-host of the Politics in Question podcast, co-founder of Fix Our House, a campaign for proportional representation and author of the Substack Undercurrent Events. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, Busy person. Uh, It keeps me busy, yes. Yes, definitely. (laughs) So, Lee, maybe just begin. I think you've heard uh, all all the rest of the show. Just be interested in any kind of thumbnail reactions you have to what's been said so far or maybe what hasn't been said so far about the ascendancy of Mike Johnson. The glasses. I, I'm, I'm a glasses wearer myself. <laughs> I spent, spent a long time trying to find the right pair of glasses. It, it, it is remarkable how much you learn or you think you learn about a person by what glasses they're hiding behind. Right. So um, let's also talk about, I mean, Mike Johnson has kind of hit the ground running a little bit. Uh <laughs> Uh, last Thursday, I think he wasn't speaker yet. I can't remember when this all happened. But already he's he's taken a pretty big step. Uh, he's running right at uh, President Biden's policies, forcing a, a showdown over emergency aid to Israel uh, and the question of whether or not that should be or could be tied to aid to Ukraine. Um, this is uh, an area where he's going to create discomfort not only for Joe Biden and, and for House and Senate Democrats, but even some Senate Republicans. Um, and so maybe already we're seeing the, I don't know, the way in which he's not afraid to go in to kind of a, a political danger zone that might put him at odds, even with some members of his own party. Well, the insurgents who ousted McCarthy clearly wanted a fighter. And Johnson is a fighter, uh, dis- despite his his uh, Clark Kent glasses. <laughs> He's he understands that to maintain the support of Republicans in the House, he needs to show that he's a fighter, and that's exactly what he's doing right out of the gate. So this whole drama is dependent on the notion of a speaker and uh, of a, dependent on a certain way of electing a leader of the House of Representatives. Um, you've written about the fact that it doesn't necessarily have to be only this way. I mean, we saw earlier this year, obviously, there was a McCarthy rules package that got passed, much to Kevin McCarthy's ultimate detriment, uh, because it, it contained the tools for getting rid of him. But I assume if you can change the rules like that, you could change the rules some other way. Right. The, the Constitution 
says the House should choose a speaker. It doesn't say what the speaker should do, what roles and powers the speaker should have. The first generation of speakers in the House just basically played the role of traffic cop and decorum manager. And that's what the British House of uh, the, the, the British House of uh, Commons does with its speaker. It's just basically a presiding officer. Senate has a presiding officer, but the House is distinct in that the speaker has come to play this very almost godlike role in the the way that the chamber operates. And that puts tremendous pressure on who becomes speaker. But if you look at the history of how the House has operated over more than two centuries, you will see that at certain moments, the Speaker has had a lot of power. There was a period from about 1890 to 1910 when the Speaker was very powerful. Then the Speaker became much less powerful for about 60 years. And then starting in the late 70s, uh, uh, more and more power return to the speakership. And ultimately, it's a choice among the members of the House of Representatives how they want to organize the chamber. There's no one way that the House has been organized. Every Congress has been different. But we've now had about four decades of really centralizing power, strongly centralized power in the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And when I look at that model, doesn't seem to be working no. Sometimes it's the rules and, and sometimes it's a combination of the rules and the person. I, I think of Newt Gingrich as somebody who, 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 yeah, in the 90s thought, wow, I could do a lot with this. Uh, I could do things maybe that other sure, speakers haven't sure. tried before. So just knowing your work and your orientation, I, I'm guessing that one of your explanations for all this is that the speaker becomes a prize. It becomes a brass ring that goes on the finger of whoever won the the two party contest uh, in terms of, of representation in the House. But I'd love to hear you say more about that. Well, right. Uh, the the prize is the gavel, and the prize is controlling the majority, and then getting everything all the all the committee chairs complete control over what comes to the floor. And th that is a really big prize in our politics today. It's not always been the case. There have been plenty of moments in which Congress was governed in a somewhat bipartisan way, in which there was a, a rules committee that was somewhat separate from the speaker that had folks from uh, across the aisle working together. But now in this moment in which power is so centralized, power is so partisan, and that creates this dynamic in which you you do not want to be in the minority because being in the minority is nothing. So everything revolves around trying to keep that majority, or if you're out of power, trying to embarrass the party in power to get that majority back. And uh, our system, like most <laughs> systems in the world, requires a certain amount of cooperation and compromise across parties to pass legislation. And all of the incentives and in how we've organized our elections and how we've organized our governing institutions makes that very hard to accomplish. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that 
cooperation and committees of correspondence and uh, people, senators from both parties all going out to dinner with their spouses, you know, uh, and socializing. And Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy collaborating on stuff. That just seems to be gone. And, and what strikes me as a little bizarrely is you think when there's a narrow margin, like the one that there is in the House, it, it mandates almost, it requires that the speaker or the leadership of the majority party seek some cooperation with the minority party. But instead, the opposite has happened. All of the power has gone to the crazy eight, to the most extreme members of the majority party. They're the ones who have to be hung on to at all costs, as opposed to crossing the aisle and trying to pick up some centrist Democrats. And I'm not quite sure I understand why that happened. Well, it's really the culmination of decades of how our political system has uh, oriented and polarized and, and sorted so that the two parties have become very distinct geographically, uh, culturally, and the culture around the parties is such that compromise is capitulation. The, the Both parties increasingly view each other as the enemy, and you can't cooperate with the enemy. There are certainly a few centrist Democrats and a few centrist Republicans who, you know, maybe they could have crossed the aisle. What would happen to them? They would, particularly on the Republican side, they would face intense primary challenges, possibly lose. A lot of them have reported facing threats, uh, death threats, and they are cut out of their tribe, right? I mean, there's a sense that it's, it's not just... You know that that they're afraid of of what would happen to them electorally, although that is part of it. But it, it's a sense that they are part of a team. This is their identity, and they are on Team Republican or Team Democrat. And anything that breaks from that is taking away their sense of identity, their sense of belonging, their sense of who they are. There's an obligation to that. And these narrow margins, which are also somewhat unique in our political history, usually the margins have been much wider. Uh, these narrow margins create a unique situation for a small group of folks who are united to have tremendous leverage. And it seems like there is a small group of folks on the right, at least at the beginning, uh, of the Congress, and uh, I don't know how united they are now, but they are—they can have tremendous power in uh, holding a speaker's feet to the fire because if they don't support that speaker, there's only one way for a speaker to come to power, and, and right now, with, you know, there's only one way for McCarthy to come to power with all the Republican votes. Only one way for Johnson to come to power with all the. Republican votes. And that gives this group tremendous leverage. Yeah, it's sort of a weird thing. We have to wrap up here. But I did want to say, I've always sort of liked the idea of primaries and liked the idea that from either party, you don't want somebody to get too comfortable, too ensconced. Uh, there should be pr- pressure, ideological pressure in the form of primary challengers from time to time. But we obviously are living in a system now where an awful lot of sitting politicians are more, more worried about a primary than about a general election. And that's leading to exactly the conditions that you're describing. Lee Drutman senior fellow in the political reform uh, program at New America, author of Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, the case for multi-party democracy in America. Check out also uh, his podcast, Politics uh, in Question. We are all out of time here. We are going to say goodbye, but uh, it has been great to do this. Thanks again to Lily Tyson. We had to get this show ready pretty fast, and she did her usual marvelous job. Tell the middle class they will get their cut. They don't know they're taking it right up the butt. 
when it comes to solving problems. There's a lot of tricks he knows. Give the rest of cheeses, cheesy bits and pieces. Jesus, watch the Congress decompose. Speaker of the House, not the type to lie. Never told a fossil he's that kind of guy. Serve it to the rich, toady to the right. Now today he's giving up without a fight. Everybody shun the speaker.